0: Hi da I da I I can't hear you because I got my right <laughs>
1: it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that while Jews are connected to the solar calendar, we are also deeply connected to the lunar calendar, and feeling the power of Rosh Chodesh that comes with that connection to the waxing and waning of of the moon and feeling like our holidays, our cycle, our, our Jewish consciousness is connected with, um, with the solar systems at large and how the micro, the, uh, the life of macro experience is interconnected with the life of, of micro experience. So, um, So friends, we're gonna get into some complicated stuff today with Israel, <laughs> not too complicated, but some stuff here, we're gonna start with a little poll. Let's start with a little poll to see Um, what you think about this. Okay, Israel is complicated, right? Do we agree? Israel is complicated. Which camp in Israel are you most aligned with? Of course, these are very simplistic, but if you had to pick one, number one, the Palestinians are quote unquote evil and we should do whatever it takes at any cost to protect Israeli security at all times. Number two, we must protect Israeli security, but we also must reach for a higher level of ethics. Number three, I love Israel, but we must make a peace process more urgent and build a more just country. Number four, yeah, I'm a liberal Zionist, but stop the occupation now. Number five, I'm now anti-Zionist or post-Zionist. Okay, um, I'm sure there's a, a, we would need about a thousand different points on a spectrum to accurately depict where we stand. But if you had to pick one of these um, kind of hawkish, Israel in the first camp really uh, dismiss the claims of the opposition given failed attempts at peace processes versus it's really all Israel's fault on the other end. Uh, where would you place yourself here take take 30 seconds. Uh, of course this is always anonymous we don't know who's voting for what so don't worry uh I know I know worse than worse in the Jewish community than saying you don't believe in God or Torah or anything is <laughs> according to some is being critical of Israel so don't worry, it's all anonymous. Okay, as as soon as we have the results, we can we can shine it up on the on the screen here. Okay, can you see the results? Okay, very interesting that zero percent of you were in either uh, uh, I, I hate to call it an extreme, but either end of the spectrum, either completely discrediting Palestinians and completely saying Israel is perfect, or Uh, placing all of the burden on Israel um, and really uh, rejecting Zionism at at large. And so 70% are in category two, protecting Israeli security, but also we must do better. And 30% are in category three. I love Israel, but we must make a peace process more urgent and build a more just country. Okay. I think this is where the vast majority of American Jews are, you know, liberal Zionists, uh, Deep connection to Israel, but also deep concerns and problems. So today we're going to look at one of the great debates uh, that um, that emerges in regards to how do we address these problems. Some of the debates we're going to look at are not actually debates between two people or two camps. They are long-standing ideological debates. For example, next week we're going to look at gun rights versus gun control in Jewish thought right? There's no one person who debated one other person. It's the issue of weapons. And throughout every generation of Jewish history, Jews have grappled with how to be pacifists versus hawks, how to engage in self-defense versus uh, protection of the other, um, how to take responsibility for our objects. But last week, we looked at a very specific debate, Hillel and Shammai. Today, we're looking at a very specific debate, Yitz Greenberg and Mayor Kahana. So here we go. Rabbi Dr. Yitz Irving Greenberg, who is a friend to VBM, and Rabbi Meir Kahana, um, who passed away before VBM was founded, could be described as mirror images of each other. Now, do you know what I mean by mirror images of each other? Most people mistake mirror images to mean identical, but mirror images mean identical, but upside down, right? It's like, think of a mountain reflecting on the water. It's the same mountain, but it's upside down, which is to say that Yitz Greenberg and Meir Kahana emerge from the same world, yet they come to reverse conclusions. And those opposing conclusions play out more broadly in the tug of war between extremism and a more measured type of thinking that allows for serious debate to be paired with respect. Let's talk about Kahana. Rabbi Meir Kahana, born in 1932 passed in 1990, was born in America, was ordained as an Orthodox rabbi, and ultimately moved to Israel. He was an ultra-nationalist politician who served one term in the Israeli Knesset in 1984. He was a founder of the far-right militant Jewish Defense League in 1968, and the founder of the Kach Party, the Kach Party in Israel in 1971. In 1988, this party was banned from entering elections. In 1971, he was convicted on criminal charges, as you can see here in the picture, in the U.S. for conspiracy to manufacture explosives, for which he received a suspended sentence of five years. He was also convicted in Israel for ostensibly planning an act of terrorism in a plot to blow up the Libyan embassy in Brussels, in retaliation for the 11 Israeli athletes tragically murdered at the 1972 Summer Olympics. Kahana claimed that his militarism constituted Torah true Judaism. That's a political term you may have heard before, Torah true Judaism, and was required by Halakha. He was wildly prolific and active in the press, and argued that there would inevitably be a Holocaust in America, which would necessitate mass aliyah, mass immigration to Israel. He argued for annexation by Israel of all Palestinian lands, those in the West Bank and in Gaza. And he believed that the state of Israel should enforce halakhic observance by its citizens. One example of his extremism, based on an interpretation of Maimonides, found in the Mishnah Torah, the Laws of Kings, Chapter 6, Was his suggestion that any Gentiles living in the land of Israel should either embrace limited rights or leave, either willingly or with some compensation or forcefully without compensation? He also wanted Israel to forbid intermarriages between Jews and Arabs by law and fought for other forms of segregation. Kahana was assassinated. Many people don't know that, but he was assassinated. In 1990, in a New York City hotel, by El Sayed Nosero, an Egyptian-born U.S. citizen, he continues to inspire a movement of far-right Jewish militants to this day. Actually, pre-COVID, maybe two, three years ago, I was at Simchas Torah. I was at Simcha Torah, and the guy dancing next to me in the circle was wearing a JDL kippah, and uh, and once I noticed, he noticed that I noticed and gleefully smiled as big as he could, seeing my discomfort uh, with this kippah he was wearing. Okay, that's a snapshot of Kahana. Born in 1933, right? Recall, Kahana born in 1932. They were teenage friends. They were teenage buddies. Kahana is born in 32. Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg, born in 33. His preeminence in Torah thought is but a minor aspect of his larger role in shaping contemporary Jewish attitudes towards the entire role, world. One could easily argue he has the greatest influence on American Judaism of any living rabbi today. From the time he was ordained at Beth Joseph Navardic Rabbinic Seminary in New York City and earned a PhD in American History at, at Harvard University in the 1950s to his tenure as a professional working to stimulate the development and application of new ideas within the Jewish community in an array of significant capacities, Greenberg has been a tireless proponent of a more engaged and tolerant Judaism. In his understanding, pluralism is the Jewish ideal in which narrow particularism is eschewed as a remnant from earlier, more precarious times. Undoubtedly, Greenberg is one of the most significant moral voices in our time. I'm quite fortunate to benefit from him being a close personal mentor of mine, speaking with him probably on a weekly basis, interacting with him on a daily basis. Just wanna put that out there that I am i have the bias, I have the bias of a deep personal relationship as, uh, as probably one of my closest mentors. His years of service in the rabbinate as an author, lecturer, and as an organizational leader, an activist for a multitude of spiritual causes, have been responsible for respect, spreading Jewish values across the spectrum of religious traditions and cultures. Rav Yitz is this generation's consummate bridge builder. He constructs b- bridges within the Jewish community, as well as between different faiths, and often the vast gulf that separates tradition and modernity. While committed to orthodoxy, here he, by the way, this picture here is obviously with Bush, if you remember him, and obviously with Elie Wiesel um, over here at, at a White House ceremony. While committed to orthodoxy himself, Rav Yitz has made great contributions across all walks of Jewish life, always remaining rooted within a forward-looking halachic framework of observance. He is that rare pedagogue who has demonstrated the relevance of a modern Judaism while assembling and nurturing the vibrant Jewish institutional landscape that we know today. OK, now let me say another word about, about Yitz. Currently, he, um, he, he is positioned at Hadar, which is a non-denominational. Uh, kind of mostly aligned with the conservative movement, um, where he leads his JJ Institute um, through through this uh, egal- uh, halakhic egalitarian world. And um, um, while the right wing sort of the, the the right wing would be critical of Yitz uh, naturally because his positions have been liberal, the progressive world would be critical of Yitz as being kind of a centrist liberal, um, who you know. Um, congratulated Trump on some of his pro-Israel stances, even while making clear he was anti-Trump. Um, he, he's someone who, in the spirit of Hillel and Shammai, likes to show both sides of every religious and political debate. And so that places him at odds with kind of a, a, a right-wing ideologues and progressive ideologues um, as someone who um, leans liberal, but in many ways, based on his articulations, is found to be a centrist. So at first glance, these two figures are quite similar. White men, straight white men, born in America in 1932, and 1932, both modern Orthodox or Orthodox rabbis, Zionists committed to Torah, both deeply influenced by the Holocaust and its aftermath, deeply, deeply influenced by the Holocaust and all of their theologies. And indeed they grew up together, with a relationship that, that Greenberg described in the following terms Mayor Kahana and I started out as good friends. During our high school years, we were classmates and joint performers in weekly skits that we often wrote together. And yet, as we just noted, Kahana was a radical particularist, while Greenberg was and is a committed universalist and, and pluralist. This departure sets the stage for a showdown between these two took place in 1988. It's hard to believe this is only uh, uh, 33 years ago. It feels like 60 years ago, but only 33 years ago, in a public debate at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, who, who was the rabbi of Hebrew Institute of Riverdale and is still their senior scholar. The debate was moderated by modern Orthodox rabbi Avi Weiss. Weiss was more aligned with Kahana in that he was right of center on Israel but Weiss was more aligned with Greenberg in regards to building a pluralistic state. So let's be clear, Avi Weiss was a Kahanist early on. Avi Weiss would be associated with a more militant form of of, of Jewish self-defense. He later did tshuva for that publicly and said he had gone too far. And he remains very closely connected with Yitz Greenberg today. Um, And so he is a complicated part of the story as well. In this debate, Kahana is passionate while greenberg is dry and exacting kahana appeals emotionally to fear of survival while greenberg thinks the argument can be won on the merit of moral persuasion here is a snippet to give you a taste of their remarks in regard to democracy in israel and the rights of arab israelis living in the land here is mayor kahana halakha i'm a man of- that the non-Jews do not have status of a Jew. Democracy is not Judaism, he argues. Wow, that's, that, that's a loaded phrase there to unpack later. Democracy is not Judaism. I, I'm raising my voice because he would want me to. He, he, to he, he would want me to be a little excited when I'm reading his words. Uh, don't read that as me uh, giving extra credibility to it. Uh, it may be painful to the modern Orthodox. Of course it's painful. It's too bad. But it's halakha. He would say halacha, it's halacha. Should I read to you the Rambam? The halacha is clear. We're going to unpack what Maimonides is doing in a little bit. But more important, long before the Arabs are a majority, what happens when they become a third of the population and they join together in a coalition government with the extreme left? (laughs) It's it's so interesting to read history when you see the headlines today, You know what's happening in Israel. You see people talking about it 70 years ago, 40 years ago. This stuff is still so alive. Okay. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Who is a Jew? Now, let me remind you, they are speaking to an audience that is deeply divided. This is a modern Orthodox synagogue in the Bronx in 1988, deeply divided about the future of this situation. And they have a deep connection to Yitz Greenberg. He used to lead a synagogue right there in Riverdale, Riverdale Jewish Center. So they know him well. And they know Kahana. He's in the Knesset. This is. A guy who moved to Israel, he's the real deal in a certain sense. Is that what you want? Who is a Jew? If you're following me on the second line of the second paragraph, decided by one third of uh, of an Arab Knesset. And above all, there is halakha here. And if there is one Arab in the country who is not willing to accept the status that was given to him by the halakha, or are we not ordained rabbis? The Palestinians believe that there should be no Israel. That is the problem. We sit and play games and games with them and worse with ourselves. The Arabs are not, I repeat for the second time, are not leaving the territories. They are coming back in droves. Unemployment now is rife in Kuwait, in Saudi, in Oman, in Abu Dhabi. They are returning, they never left. They left their families behind and send them checks constantly. There are Arabs from America who are not coming back. I saw them when I was on reserve duty for a month. Now, to live in this delusion, if we give back, if we give this back and we give that back, that somehow we will realize that time is not on our side. Time is on their side. As long as we have Jews who split the community. As long as we have Jews who condemn the policy of the government of Israel, as long as we have Jews who march with the Palestinians, then time is on their side. I'm not afraid of the Arabs. I'm afraid of such Jews and this one here who with no meaning is a danger to the existence of Israel. So here pointing to Yitz Greenberg is saying Yitz Greenberg is an existential threat to the future of the Jewish world. Here's Greenberg's response. I'm going to be a little toned down in my voice because Greenberg is a rationalist. Uh, he's, he's a little bit dry, a little bit boring, which is not a critique. He's an intellectual. Um, he's gonna he, He'll talk at, at long-winded phrases. Um, he'll give every question it's due. In short, the overwhelming consensus of, of responsible rabbis of any halakhic standing or leaning as menschlikites is that these laws do not apply to Arabs or to Christians or non-Jews who are not idolaters, and therefore, i.e. Kahana, is using this totally out of context in order to make the halakha appear to be cruel, atrocity-ridden, antagonistic to Gentiles. The truth is, I would say, the opposite, that there should be no limits to Arab rights because, in fact, democracy gives them a chance to grow and become integrated into society and to commit themselves to that society. Democracy is the best fulfillment of the vision of the Jewish covenant. Second paragraph. Hold on, I see somebody chatted. Let me just see what they wrote over there. Ah, thank you, thanks Eileen. There is an indigenous Arab population on the West Bank and Gaza. It's one million three hundred forty-two thousand and growing. Those numbers have obviously grown. If we add them to the Israeli Arab population, that changes the balance from eighty-two sixteen to 65, 35. The highest birth rates in the Arab world are in the West Bank and Gaza because the women there are are in rural situations and are in poverty, and their absolute births would make Arab births outnumber the Jews. And for that reason alone, because that is the only potential plausible theory of imbalance demographically. But the deeper reason is even deeper than that. Our dream is realized. We came back to the land of Israel We paid in full for it, but there is a population there and they are human beings. That it's true they are exploited by the PLO and Israel, but they have roots, attachment, hopes, and lives. They didn't have a Palestinian nationalism 25 years ago, but now they do, in part because of exposure of Israel and our model of self-respect and dignity of self-rule. If I can make room for them, I should. If I can make room for their dignity, the answer is yes. And the greatest respect and greatest peace chance comes when there is self-rule and self-responsibility. Now our commitment to their dignity and their freedom cannot be to commit suicide. It is no mitzvah to destroy ourselves. And therefore, we will long for peace. And if there is a new leadership that is prepared to make peace, they are going to change. It's up to them to convince, to convince us, the Jewish people. Friends, the entirety of this debate is fascinating and heated. Yet, this bit we just read gives enough of a sense of how rabbis Greenberg and Kahana interpret Jewish law and how they understand Jewish sovereignty. Indeed, the two perspectives represented by Greenberg and Kahana are still very much in evidence today. Right wing Zionists frequently use rhetoric of fear to show how insecure Israel is and the drastic measures that must be taken immediately to survive. Liberal Zionists frequently use rhetoric of peace to show how urgent it is to preserve this rare Jewish experiment in building a modern democracy under Jewish sovereignty. I'm sure there are aspects of both sides that speak to most of us as modern Jews. We can reject Kahana's racism, xenophobia, and ultranationalism, and yet still see merit in a muscular Zionism. Kahana rejected that there was a Palestinian people, quote unquote, people, and even rejected peace, quote unquote, in my plan, there will be no peace. When Messiah comes, there will be peace. Until then, survival, survival, survival. I want to quote this again, because when you say only Kahana said it, it's extremism. But you have to understand how large the percentage of modern Israelis today would would support this quote. Let me read it again. In my plan, there will be no peace. When Messiah comes, there will be peace. Until then, survival, survival, survival. Right? Peace deals are for the naive far left. Right? We tried that. It all failed. It's ridiculous. It's insane. Why would you engage in a peace process when you have no partner at all? All we can do now is survival, survival, survival. Professor Shaul Magid, who also has been to VBM, critiques Greenberg for not being forceful enough with Kahana. By by the way, Professor Shaul Magid, when he was here, my interview with him was about the book he just put out about Mayor Kahana. Now, uh, Shaul Magid is associated not with liberal Zionism. He rejects liberal Zionism, but as a Um, post-Zionist. Shaul Magid is a post-Zionist. And nonetheless, he wrote a book about Mayor Kahana. Uh, on trying to understand how someone this charismatic uh, garnered such influence. And he argues Mayor Kahana won. He says, if you look at the Jewish establishment today, the positions are largely aligned, not with the rhetoric and extremism of Mayor Kahana, but with the same conclusions of Mayor Kahana. The American Jewish establishment, he said, is aligned. He said, Kahana won. And in Israel, all the more so, he says, there are no liberal parties that have any power left in Israel. It is all moved to centrist or right. And that's why uh, the coalitions all all involve far-right extremist groups. Uh, And so he says Mayor Kahana won. So here's where Magid critiques Greenberg for not being forceful enough with Kahana. He he writes, Greenberg could have, he just wrote this a few months ago. Greenberg could have deflected the halakhic conversation by claiming that Kahana's idea of transfer, i.e. kick the Arabs out of the land, was not an attempt to transform the state into a theocracy, which was antithetical to the entire Zionist project. He did not make that argument. Greenberg did not make that argument. And I think he missed an important, even crucial, opportunity. Indeed, Kahana openly said that he supported democracy in Israel only for Jews and not for Arabs. Friends, interestingly enough, at the time of the above-quoted debate, Greenberg would have been considered a polar opposite of Kahana, the former liberal and the latter conservative. By today's new standards, Greenberg would be considered a centrist, even right of center by many, given that the left-wing end of Jews has moved further left. Left Left-wing Zionism has moved further left in ways that has made Greenberg very uncomfortable and that he himself has denounced. Greenberg rejects most of former President Trump's positions and rhetoric, yet has still expressed public gratitude for him for his support of Israel in ways that the American Jewish liberal establishment would never or very rarely do. Actually, let me, let me not call that the American Jewish liberal establishment, but the American Jewish liberal population, because that's generally not establishment. Many in the same many in the space perceived by some as the far left in American Jewish life have declared themselves post-Zionist and even anti-Zionist but just because a few op-eds emerge each month declaring liberal Zionism to be dead doesn't make it so. We should resist the tempting urge to bandwagon and fall into the dangerous extremes of either far-right ultranationalism or the far left boycotting Israel. We can adamantly defend the Jewish people's right to a state and celebrate the enormous successes of the holy enterprise, while also being fervently opposed to the many seemingly horrible policies championed by so many Israeli leaders of late. I know it may seem like this middle ground is dead today since its proponents get silenced by the extremes, But the future of the Jewish people, not just its survival, but also its soul, depends on this nuance, in my belief. Personally, and here I'll welcome debates from folks, obviously, I'm very uncomfortable with the far left perspective on Israel, as it often doesn't appreciate Israel's security enough, or Israel's global reputation enough, or the extent of pervasive anti-Semitism enough or the Jewish historical historical narrative enough. And I'm very uncomfortable with the far right, because that side often doesn't appreciate Gentile life enough, or appreciate peace enough, or appreciate the Palestinian narrative enough. I remain a passionate religious Zionist, finding deep religious meaning in the Jewish return to the land and return to sovereignty. And I remain passionate about reconciliation, grassroots, bottom-up relationship and trust building, and a two-state solution, political top-down agreement. I've remained hopeful that eventually a heroic Israeli leader and a heroic Palestinian leader would emerge, each with real clout in their own communities, who would make a deal happen. I fear that the Trump-Netanyahu collaboration may have caused irreparable harm to a peace process on various levels, increasing the settler population destroying any remaining bridge-building enterprises, fostering a new fundamentalist confidence, breaking down attempts at vulnerable empathy across party lines, et cetera. We need to ensure that the new administration in the US is held accountable to Trump's statements against cellular expansion. And we also need to oppose a new flat-out rejection of of a two-state peace solution that is necessary to save lives, enhance dignity, and ensure the right to self-determination. I know some feel that a two-state solution is a thing of the past, but I don't believe we can responsibly give up on this dream. The alternatives are too dangerous existentially and morally. I am in this camp myself that sees it as the only option for Jewish survival and for Jewish ethics. If we don't prioritize reconciliation between Jewish Israelis, Israelis, and Arab Israelis and other Palestinians. The radical fundamentalists will, God forbid, destroy the state of Israel as we know it. We have no option but to work for a two-state solution and to work towards reconciliation. It may seem naive to some to return to such work, but it is more naive, in my view, to think that we can maintain the status quo and come out alive somehow. That means that we can't have everything we want. It means that we must take the moral high ground. It means that we must prioritize survival over land. The right and the left both live in denial. The right says that if we annex Palestinian territories, then all will be resolved and we'll have security and peace. The left says that if we just give back land to Palestinians, to their control, then we'll have security and peace. Of course, both are oversimplistic and will not achieve the results they claim. It is hard to survive. And we should feel the gravitas of this weight upon us in our advocacy. We can find inspiration from past generations. A very frail old man in a wheel, wheelchair with bloody bandages along his face was sitting behind me in Shul, one Russia shut up. At the end of service, he grabbed my hand and pulled my face close. And he fervently said, I am a Holocaust survivor, and I am entitled to give you a bracha, a blessing. It was a beautiful bracha to remember and cherish, and I gratefully replied, amen. Sensing a spiritual fire within this humble man, I asked him, might you share with me your wisdom of survival? What has sustained you? He paused for a few moments, and then he whispered, when I was in the concentration camps, I always reminded myself that things could always be worse. Things can always be worse, he said. Friends, when we face difficult challenges in the coming years, may we always remember his wisdom that things could always be worse. Can we learn to complain less and channel the energy of our self-absorption more toward helping others? In the Greenberg Kahana debate, Rabbi Greenberg modeled for us to make the important effort to keep the dialogue alive even when we confront others who are deemed extremists. We must denounce extremists rather than give them a pass, downplaying their influence. We can also sharpen our ideas through such dialogue. I was invited to do something that I was critiqued for. I was invited to, for the Pesach of 2020, to spend the week at a venue that would have given me the opportunity to spend eight days debating conservative, although not necessarily extremist thinkers, Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro for the week. While this experience was canceled last minute due to the COVID pandemic, I was prepared to be dismissed and shamed in order to have the privilege of putting out an alternative narrative to this large crowd to what was likely to be a, a right wing Orthodox audience. And so there's a lot to learn from the Greenberg and Kahana debate. It is worth watching the full video. You can find it on YouTube. The audio is not so good. Or reading the full transcript. In the meantime, we see that the very debate is still almost exactly completely relevant and alive today. Greenberg and Kahana were friends as teenagers, but this debate was the last time they appeared publicly together. Some relationships we must ultimately walk away from. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause here. I would love to, uh, um, is there a way to download or access the two statements that started this discussion? Yes. Matthew, if you email me, I will email you those two long quotes. Thank you for that question. Friends, uh, unmute yourself. We'd love to hear your questions and thoughts um, on the Mayor Kahana debate, on this conflict, uh, pushback on me and where where I fell out on this. Because nobody falls out in the exact same spot on these things. We all want to word this stuff differently. And so please feel free to, to, to jump in.
2: Hi. Um, I have a few comments. One is that people forget that there are Israeli Arabs who actually serve in the army. There's the Druzeem, there's the Circassians, um, mm-hmm. there are Israeli. You know, I lived in Zichon Yaakov with the people in Faradis. We shopped together. Um, there's friendships going back and forth. The rabbi Minyan was friendly with the imam there. So that, you know, the Kahanist thing is so extreme. But I just want to say also to somebody who's still really concerned about Israeli politics. I grew up in Akiva. I was a member of Mizrahi. And what is now called religious Zionism would never be recognized by religious Zionists of days before become Kahanist, and um, that Bozalel Shmo- Smotrich was the Minister of Education when he is an avowed uh, racist and a homophobe, and that now there's a Kahanist possibly in a coalition with Bibi, the far right, and the Haredim, just chills my blood. So uh, we need less Kahana
1: and more Yitz Greenberg. Lauren, thank you for that context. And just so folks have the data on that, Today in Israel, there are uh, about 1.7 million Arab Israelis. That is over 20% of the Israeli population. So just to be clear, Arab Israelis, some of them will call themselves Arab Israelis. Some of them will call themselves Palestinians. They are not required or even allowed to serve in the Israeli government, but they do have voting rights. In fact, they have full rights as Arab Israel, as Israeli citizens. Of course, there is, they experience discrimination as as, uh, without justification, I'm I'm only condemning discrimination, but as every minority does in every every country on the planet, um, uh, again, that's not justifying it, it's just contextualizing it. Uh, They do experience discrimination. And now they have, um, have, there are also right-wing, there's also um, right-wing Arab-Israeli parties, such as the one that is conversation in the current, uh, putting the current coalition together. They're not all left-wing. And this raises this age old question, should the state of Israel be Jewish as a state or should the state of Israel be democratic? There are some people who try to argue it somehow can be both. Um, Greenberg was arguing for both. Um, Kahana was arguing for one. He says, democracy is not in the Torah. Democracy is not in Halakha. It's It's a late modern invention. We are Jewish, not democratic. Those people don't get full rights. Um, others argue, uh, Jews in Israel argue it should be democratic, not Jewish. We should remove Judaism completely from the governmental structure, not just separation of religion and state, but have no Jewish identity whatsoever as a government. Um, and people like Yitz will argue for the balance. Okay. Let's hear from someone else. Thank you, Lauren.
3: I, I think, I think things are going on at two levels. I think first of all, within the, within the Israeli political I think the whole question, the instability of having these um, elections and everything is, is, is an example why it's an unstable political system as the Israeli Arabs are not brought into the process and part of the government. If you take a Knesset of 120 and you immediately say that 10 to 12 to 14 of those members cannot be in a government, that means to form a government you have to have Jewish parties that represent, what, 60% of the Knesset? That's just uh, unstable, and it, it has been a, a, a big thing. And so you have a choice in, in Israel that, that comes in. Are you going to be a apartheid state, which is what it means if you're only going to be a pure Jewish state? Or are you going to be a state that that is is Jewish in the sense of, of of citizenship and bringing in, but it's also going to be more democratic if it's going to be able and and, and work towards creating the concept of Israel as a state, as opposed to Israel as a religious institution. And then you have the wider context, which with the US minimizing under Trump its dominance in the region that um, the anti-Iranian Iranian regions ha, um, countries are turning towards Israel as the major power to help them in the balance of Iran. So it strikes me that there in it, that possibility of a change in a dynamic that we haven't seen since probably '67 are, are seen ever, and so it's it's I think their debate is, is not up to date with the situation, what we're seeing now and the possibilities. I think we can use it as an example. I think we need to be careful though, not to use the past as binders and looking at where we're going.
1: Yeah, Michael, thank you for that. There's a lot to unpack there, Mike, and um, uh, really a lot to say, thank you for that. And I think that, yes, I, I do think we should appreciate this debate in its own historical context. Let me share a few things. Firstly, the, uh, Avi, Rabbi Avi Weiss asked four questions in this debate. Three had to do with the political situation in Israel. The fourth had to do with religious pluralism in Israel. And, and that was the one where, where um, uh, Rabbi Weiss would have been more aligned with Rabbi Greenberg in regards to um, uh, the, the break of the monopoly of orthodoxy in Israel. They both would have agreed with that. Um, and today, even more fervently, would agree that the chief rabbinate should either be uh, should basically be abolished, um, that there should no be, there shouldn't be any ultra-orthodox control over the state. They, and there shouldn't be control over conversions, or over weddings, or over funerals, <laughs> or over—I uh, can't remember if I said conversions yet. You know, um, uh, or you know, fill in the blank on, on in regards to status laws. And um, and uh, um, and so while they would agree there should be Jewish values that inform the nature of the state, that Jewish law should not, nor should it be controlled by by rabbis. Now, let me unpack two other things here. The first of which, you know, at VBM, we recently had Daniel Gordas. Um, Actually, I see Cheryl here. It was our Hammerman family lecture. We had Daniel Gordas. And Daniel Gordas, um, by the left, would be considered right of center. By the right, would be considered left of center. I think you could safely say Daniel Gordas is centrist. And one of the things he writes in his recent book about the divide between American Jews and Israeli Jews is that the fundamental orientation towards the countries are at odds. And that's why they can't understand each other, he argues. He says American Jews understand America to be a state that was built to be a refugee state. It was a state built to welcome immigrants. It was a state built on diversity. It would be anti-Jewish to be American and be anti-refugee. What do you mean you're anti-refugee? How did Jews get here? How did everybody get here? This is a country that every Jew should promote, pro-immigration, pro-refugee rights, et cetera, et etc. Cetera. He says Israel was fundamentally founded on a different premise. It was founded, the modern state of Israel, as a refuge for the Jewish people in a post-Holocaust era. It was not founded as a state to be a place of refuge, a place of refuge for all populations. It was not put founded on a place that was about um, about prioritizing diversity and welcoming various minorities into a diverse state of a melting pot. It was founded as a place for Jewish survival. And he says, until we understand that different orientation, there'll always be this divide. Now, let me unpack one more thing before I open up the, the floor again. In that debate, part of what they're, they're talking about is what Maimonides, what Rambam is saying about the, the, the Jewish law of, in regards to minorities within Jewish sovereignty. Now, Maimonides does something, for lack of a better phrase, something liberal, something progressive, in that he reads the Torah. And he says, oh no, the Jews are committing genocide when they return to land? It's all a beautiful Exodus story, right? The Jews are slaves, beautiful, they're freed. It's beautiful, they wander through the desert and then they return to land, beautiful. And then all of a sudden, what does every student do? Go, oh no, they go into the land and they wipe out the indigenous populations in Canaan in, in to populate the land. And the Rambam says, oh no, what are we gonna do about this? This is like.'" This is not the moral foundation of the Judaism of how we return to the land. What are we going to do about this? So he says the halakha is as this. You have to do drishat shalom. You have to send a warning call for peace. You can't just go in and kill people. You have to say, hey, friends. I know this this is still offensive to us modern people, but it's better than what the alternative was. He says, hello, friends. We're coming home, and we don't want to kill you. And so if you are not idolaters and you're committed to ethics, and you're committed to Jewish sovereignty in the land, you can live here as second-class citizens. Now, in ancient times, that's not so atrocious. Most people just went into lands and wiped people out. There's no call to peace. There's no welcome of second-class citizenship. You're just wiped out. So this is progress in its historical context, although certainly in our our modern understanding, it's not progress. So he says, look, you can't just kill people. You got to give them peace. You got to give them rights. That's what Kahana wants. Kahana wants... You are welcome to say if you understand this is not your country and you don't have full rights here. He says that's what the Rambam say. Now, what, what, what Greenberg does, instead of, instead of rejecting the application of Rambam to this situation, he does a different move. He says the Rambam only applies to idolaters. That's how you treat idolaters. And the Palestinians are not idolaters; they're Muslims, and virtually no one thinks in Jewish thought that Muslims are idolaters. They are monotheists; they don't worship statues. They believe in one God. They also don't depict God, even even more so than Jews do. Uh, don't depict; they don't want any human images in their masks. Um, and so he says be, that doesn't apply at all in such a case. Um, and so. Uh, of course they should be given full rights. So it's important to unpack the way they're interpreting Jewish law in regards to the modern state. Okay, let me pause again to hear from other people.
3: Can you talk a little bit more about um, Torah true Judaism? And, And the question behind the question is, do you see this debate more about like biography and the lives they lived and the experiences they had and they just thought about government and civil society differently? Or is it more about like fidelity and literalism to the Torah, I guess?
1: Oh, that's a great question, Scott. Thank you. Okay, there's a lot to say there. Let me try to be brief because I want to welcome more voices in. So um, on a literal level, what Torah true Judaism means is I believe every word of the Torah was given by God. And I submit to a literalist interpretation of Torah. Now, to be sure, Those people accept, not reject, oral law. They accept the Talmud. But their interpretation of the Talmud is the Talmud is not debates among rabbis. The Talmud was given at Sinai also. The rabbis are revealing through their debates what was already given at Sinai, rather than doing something generative or constructive. Right? They are not advancing Judaism they're not reinterpreting Judaism they are giving access to people what was already revealed this is um this is called torah true Judaism politically what it means is you submit to das torah you submit to the ultra orthodox gadolim you submit to the authorities of the ultra orthodox world today so there's a fellow who looked who based on how he dressed um who looked to me like a modern jew and i approached him in my first few years here at valley beit midrash I said, I'd like to talk to you about what we're doing at Valley Beit Midrash and see if you might want to join our programming and potentially even support our program. He said, no, I will not attend or support because I only support Torah true Judaism. Now, he was trying to offend me by saying, you're a, you're a liberal Jew who um, is involved in interpretations that are not aligned with the ultra-Orthodox establishment. He was trying to offend me as not being a true Jew. Or a true rabbi in such a regard. Um, But he was all, but so it was a political gesture. um, But he was also saying that religiously, he wouldn't agree with a program that's gonna bring reform and conservative rabbis in, that's gonna invite women rabbis in, that's gonna engage in liberal debate, right? The only model can be there is the ultra Orthodox rabbi who tells you the truth and you accept it and submit to that lifestyle. So now, all of that being said, Kahana is still, which is kind of interesting, what we would call a modern Orthodox Jew. And in that context, what that means is he rejects the Karedi ultra-Orthodox population. That's why it's interesting he's using this phrase. The ultra-Orthodox population does not serve in the army. They are anti-Zionists. Um, they they, they want to be a part of the government so that they can get money for their schools and protect their right to, to have, get stipends to study in yeshiva and not have to serve in the army at all. They want to protect those two interests. And these days, they have a third interest. In addition to staying out of the army and, and, and receiving their stipends, in addition to having funding for their schooling, the third interest is, is, is blocking religious pluralism. They want to make sure the chief rabbinate has power, and, the, and increasingly so, they want to block the reform and the conservative, uh, and to some degree, even the religious Zionists. So Kahana is a religious Zionist and a modern Orthodox, and yet he's using this phrase in this way. The other thing that he invokes, in addition to a conservative notion of halakha, they invoke the Holocaust differently. Uh, They're both Holocaust theologians. It's hard to call Kahana a theologian. Well, let's call him that for parody's sake. Yitz Greenberg is most certainly the most profound Holocaust theologian of the 20th century. century. And um, Greenberg invokes the Holocaust for Jewish survival and for universalism. Kahana invokes the Holocaust to say, Anything less than a fear-based model, a survivalistic model, is naive. And Israel primarily needs to be a, a state that is built upon the response of the Holocaust in a way that every Jew of the diaspora needs to move to Israel now because the Holocaust is coming again. And we need to block Arab rights because they will eventually be either a majority or a large enough minority that they will put the Jewish security at risk as well. Okay that was a long winded answer but I hope that gave thank enough you. there. Scott. thank you yeah. okay someone else by the way let me let me let me suffice it to say that um I'm not an academic and that's why I bring my own views into this but as I bring in my own views remember my views are not VBM's views right VBM is a wide array of opinions and views we want people to engage in debate. And so I shared Kahana, I shared Greenberg, I shared my own views in trying to understand them, but my views are my views. And so if uh, VBM is about creating a space for a whole range of views, and so if you fall out somewhere differently, like we welcome that into the space as well. So pluralism means I do put my view on the table and you do put your view on the table. We put Kahana on the table and Greenberg on the table. We want everything on the table of debate.
2: Well, the um, situation ever be resolved?
1: Okay, Eileen. Will the situation ever be resolved? What a, what an amazing question! And um, I think there are uh, um, there are a few approaches to this question. There is the approach of Kahana, which he says only when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes, right? And that is the way that that Messianists. Um, And let's not even say just Messianists, people who engage in a theology of Messianism at all, understand this. They understand that there are certain conflicts which are irresolvable. Liberals and conservatives, um, race divides, um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and these are things that are going nowhere. They're going nowhere, maybe little bits of developments here and there, only when Mashiach comes. And thus, um, our job now is to survive, and do Torah and mitzvot in order to bring Mashiach. That's the Kahana answer. The answer of Greenberg is we should engage in activism, which ensures we can resolve this. The answer of of an increasing camp, let's call them left of center in Israel, um, but more or less aligned with the center is peace is dead nobody talks about working for peace anymore. There's only some little fringe um, uh, peace, pro-peace group in Israel today. What we can do morally and responsibly is advocate for a reduction of suffering. We can have settlement policies be less uh, oppressive. We can have the occupation be less hurtful and damaging. Um, We can try to minimize the pain. We can try to develop grassroots relationships we can try to you know, advance uh, solidarity and collaboration, but peace is ridiculous. There's no possible path towards peace um, or any possible peace partners. If you look at the populations of Israelis who now favor giving up land uh, for peace, it, 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 it's, it's getting slimmer and slimmer. If you look at the population of Palestinians that favor any form of peace deal, it's getting slimmer and slimmer. And so I think uh, it's very difficult to suggest that, um, that this will be resolved. Many who argue for it to be resolved um, argue that it'll be a regional peace process, similar to what we saw in the Trump administration, although that wasn't really a peace process. That was more symbolic, one might say. Um, But but a a regional peace process rather than an Israeli-Palestinian peace process, that the entire region will need to collaborate on something here. Nonetheless, I believe as Jews built in our DNA is hope and a commitment to doing what's right. And so I don't think we can throw in the towel on believing such a conflict can be resolved um, and that it can be resolved before Messianic era. Okay, who else have we not heard from yet? Yehuda, Cheryl, Francine, Matthew, Eileen. Time for one more question, perhaps, or thought. David.
3: Well, the, um, you know, the Mashiach doesn't just come. Um, teaching is that through our actions, we bring the Mashiach. So, you know, to say, you know, we're, you know, we're going to sort of wait for a miracle is not according to historical Jewish teachings. Yeah. So, um, uh,
1: Okay, great. So I'm debating whether I'm debating whether Messianism should at one point be one of the debates to come, <laughs> um, given the range of views there. But um, but David raises is, raises a really important point here around the Jewish theologies of Messianism, and as you may recall, one of the most famous and powerful teachings teachings in Avot de Rabbi Natan is that if you're planting a tree and they tell you Mashiach has come, um, you cannot stop planting your tree. You can't stop planting your tree. And there's a lot to say about such a text. It's really powerful and beautiful as to why that would be. Um, But suffice it to say that even if Mashiach were to come, the work still doesn't stop, right? So um, yeah, so thank you for that. Thank you for that, David. Um, And uh, and to be sure, um, according to Maimonides, who's a rationalist as opposed to a mystical approach to messianism, Maimonides thinks that one of the primary ingredients in or, or steps toward uh, to actually be in the Messianic era is a return to Jewish sovereignty. So he, as, as, as every, uh, virtually every religious Zionist believes, we are in the Messianic era now already. We are already in it. Um, so OK. Uh, OK, we, we still have two minutes. I want to use the time. Uh, one more person? Molly. Yes,
4: I I was actually reminiscing on chat with Eileen here when uh, in the 1970s, we had Meyer Kahani come and speak to our young leadership development committee group at the old JCC and how controversial bringing him here was I'm I'm sure the Federation is who brought brought him here and you know we we all thought you know in the 70s we were all a lot younger and idealistic and everything and we thought, we need to hear this guy we need to hear this guy so I just I mean it it was just a very interesting I mean he's a larger than life kind of he was a larger than life kind of character but we were in a small room in the JCC and I think um, you know security wasn't an issue but we there were just not that many people that wanted to pay him a mind and come to see him, you know? And this is a, a small group. So it's just interesting how ideas change.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is very interesting. And um, there's a lot to unpack in, the, in cancel culture and how we think about Georgia and professional sports and corporations and really the mess that this country is in right now. Um, and I don't wanna get into that at this point, we might in a, in a future time. But the one thing I do wanna say about that is that um, uh, there's no, there, it's there's there, there's little doubt to me uh, from my eight years at VBM that the pushback on bringing a far left voice on Israel would be infinitely stronger than the pushback on bringing a far right voice on Israel. When we brought far right voices on Israel in the past, such as um, um, uh, 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 his name will come back to me in a moment, um, I can picture his face exactly. Um, actually. Um, there, there, there was there was no pushback at all. Um, there was intrigue and that um, that VBM it's such a big tent, and there was a far right group that attended. Um, but it, in bringing, if we were to bring a far left group, there would be, there would most certainly be uh, an active and loud campaign against VBM participating in that. That's interesting to to, to process in terms of kind of where uh, pol- American Jewish uh, politics are today in regards to that conflict. Uh, um, and uh, tell me if you disagree, um, th- disagree with that. But it is interesting. For example, um, uh, today, yeah, this is the last thing I'll say because we're out of time here. Uh, le- let me put three groups along a spectrum, although this is a little bit simplistic. Uh, Peace Now would be far left. J Street would by some be considered centrist, by some be considered left of center. APAC would be considered right of center and then there's a few many groups we'd call kind of far right. Um nobody would blink an eye if uh if VVM engaged in something with uh, with APAC. they say, "Oh, that's interesting. You know, APAC is on a panel." Uh, okay? Right? And one of the far right groups also, let's say like um what's his name? Uh oh man, Jeez, my my memory's not working right now. The uh uh the uh, the, uh Zionists of America, the ZOA if the ZOA came also, some people wouldn't like it, but they wouldn't, put, they wouldn't push back. J Street center or just left of center, we would get heavy, heavy pushback. Peace now, we'd, we'd probably have a huge a huge, fallout, huge fallout. So it's interesting to kind of process some of those dynamics, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that next time. Wishing everyone a beautiful day and a chodesh tov as we enter the month of ER and bring redemption to the world. Let's keep learning together. Next week, gun rights and gun control. Thank you so
3: much.